This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This series we've been going through about just what it means to to ultimately live and function in God's kingdom. Uh, It's not easy at times because there are so many things, so many ways in which we are oriented to function that you can get to a point where the way you've been functioning for so long, you just assume that must be how God wants things. Or you kind of take a little bit of what you know about God, kind of combine it with what you've done or what you thought and kind of feel like we're okay. We kind of create our own way of functioning. We create basically our own ways of connecting to God and connecting to each other. I was thinking and prepping for this sermon, and we talked about this, I'm going to say now before, but when you really think about both the Old Testament, New Testament, you look at the things we're called to do. uh, If you just take something basic like the Ten Commandments, have you ever just asked, why would we need to be reminded to do these things? Like, why would we need to be reminded not to murder. Why would we be, need, uh, need to be reminded not to steal? Why would we need to be reminded um, not to uh, commit adultery? Why would we uh, need to be reminded not to bear false witness? Why would those things need to be on the table? Right? Think about the things that you never need to be reminded to do. You don't need to be reminded to eat. A lot of us love eating. We don't need to be reminded uh, to do things, uh, to, to seek out ways to be comfortable. You don't need to be reminded to do that, right? You're, you naturally just do that. You know, we've talked about the greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, love your Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. You know the one thing he never needs to remind you to do? Love yourself. You don't need to be reminded. Now, there's ways to talk about caring for self. It's not what we're talking about, but this natural uh, uh, ability to just the innate things that are in us. You don't need to be reminded to do that. And yet, when you come to this part of the, the when you look at these commandments, everything that God gives us, everything that Jesus commands, all the things he calls us to. He seems to repeat them over and over again. Here's the answer. The reason why you and I need to be reminded is because we're prone to do these things innately. We're prone to go there on some level. We're tempted to go there on some level. And so everything that we're talking about now in in God's kingdom, this Sermon on the Mount, this is really Jesus showing you, here's all the ways that God's kingdom does not function the way yours innately does. The things that are intrinsically just true about your heart. First, you have to be convinced that your heart is innately this way. And then secondly, you need to know, okay, so how do I function differently? Is there a different kingdom to which I can ascribe so that I don't function the way I innately want to function? That's ultimately what the kingdom is. It's the, in many ways, opposite of the ways naturally we make our own kingdom. So we've talked through several different examples where Jesus says, basically, your kingdom works this way. My kingdom works this way. Your kingdom works with just stopping at the behavior. My kingdom says, get down to the root, get down to the heart that precipitates behavior. That's my kingdom. We don't function this way normally, but Jesus's kingdom does. So it's not enough to just focus on behavior, 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 and not get to the heart. That's all Jesus is saying throughout this entire sermon. 
So today, this topic that we are talking about is no, is no different. Let me open with this. Growing up, when you're a kid and people are like talking, kids are outside and they're talking about different things and maybe you want a kid to do something and you want to make sure a kid keeps their word, they would do something called a pinky promise. Anybody ever did a pinky promise? Pinky promises is something you just learn at a vet. Thanks, Audrey. I'm glad you showed me your pinky. That's good. I'm glad you have one. When you get to, when you're a kid, uh, it, it makes sense because there's something about, you know that this kid said they'll do a thing, but you want to raise the, the level. You want to raise the stakes. You want to create something that will almost make them feel worse about violating the promise. So it's not enough to just say, I'll do it. I'll meet you outside to play a game of whatever. I, I'll be there to come outside and jump rope. It's pinky promise. Because there's something about violating the pinky promise that should make you feel worse than just violating your word. So kids know that at a very young age, you knew that a pinky promise or anything similar to that was serious business. And the reason why kids get it at a very young age is because kids know something that most adults ought to know by now. We don't really trust each other. We don't. We don't truly trust each other. And many of us know that because we know that we're not always trustworthy. And so on some level, kids at a very young age get that. I know you said you're going to do this, but I need you to give me something else. Because I just know that you aren't trustworthy. One writer put it this way. The very request for a promise testifies that we are not reliable. The fact that you need someone to do more than just say, I'll do it means we just know that in general, we don't expect people on some level to be credible, to be reliable. And so overall, we get to a place where we're not able to rely on our honesty. And so folks started having to resort to the fear of consequences in order to seal that promise. Now, at the beginning of, of uh, earlier on in this series, we looked back about 12 verses and you see Jesus explaining for us this idea of exceeding righteousness. He says, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the Pharisees, he talks about what God requires of us. And the way that he describes that righteousness, he puts it this way. He, he's been explaining the commands of God that he himself is fulfilling. And one of the ways he fulfills these commands is by bringing about their fullness for his followers. In our sermon this morning, Jesus speaks on oaths and the importance of honesty. He's, he's going to walk us through what it means to make a promise, to make an oath, and how important it is that we value honesty. Now, again, these earlier passages, Jesus really did something very similar, right? He, we heard him do this thing with topics like murder and adultery and divorce. And what did he do to bring about the fullness of those commands? What did he do to, to show that he has fulfilled those things? He moved us past the outward actions he moved us past the external behavior and focused on this internal reality that should be true. So, so every external behavior is evidence of an internal reality. Every one of them. Every external behavior is evidence of an internal reality. The reason why we struggle with trusting sometimes when people do something that's wrong or something that hurts us it's not just because the external, the external thing went on. The external thing that hurt you or the external thing that hurt me or the external thing that broke down trust, that thing alone was hard. But, but it's, the, it's the internal truth that that signifies that is the most heartbreaking. 
It's the internal truth that makes it more difficult to re-enter into relationship, to begin to trust, because ultimately you want to know, I want to know internally that honesty meter, internally that truth part is, is, is real. Because then we can start to re-enter. So, when Jesus begins to move us past this outward stuff, in other words, we know it's wrong to lie, he's getting beyond just the outward lying. Because otherwise, you just pat yourself on the back every time you don't lie. But the things that made you want to lie are still there. And that stuff actually matters. So here he is moving us past behavior to the heart. Ultimately, uh, uh, what kind of heart expresses itself in things like murder, adultery, and divorce? Well, he tells us an anger-poisoned heart, a lust-corrupted heart, a self-exalting heart. So Jesus is making clear in these teachings that our problem is not simply what we do wrong on the outside, it's who we are on the inside. And he continues the same idea in this next topic. So look with me in Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. Jesus says this, Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is his city, uh, the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you can't make a single hair white or black, but let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, you might look at this and you're like, man, Jesus just went from, man, murder, adultery, lust. He, he's walking through these heavy, heavy things. And then he talks about taking oaths. It just seems like that direction seems very off. I don't get the trajectory here. At first, it seemed like he's going from lesser to greater to greater to these things. But this just seems to be a little, a little off. Why would he go into telling people not to take oaths here? Well, we first need to talk about what an oath or a vow is. What is an oath? What is a vow? It is this practice of regularly confirming your truthfulness with an appeal to a higher power. That's what a vow, that's what an oath is. Usually when people say, I promise, you know, people say things like, I promise to God, or I promise on my mother, or I promise on this person's grave. The, I, the reasons why we do that, the reasons why people are inclined to do that, is because this is, I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want you to trust this higher authority that we mutually agree upon that should bind me. Because my word's not going to be enough. So I want to I give you this idea that there's something greater that I'm holding to, that some greater consequence I'm, I'm, I'm allowing for myself to be held to uh, in order for you to believe me. So we take oaths. We take vows. There are uh, folks who will uh, regularly, and even in, in court, it's now not mandatory, but for the longest time, I don't know if you guys know this, one of the founders of the Quaker movement was put in jail because he refused to, give, to put his hand on a Bible in order to vow before testifying in court. And part of it was because he would say, hey, listen, I'm not supposed to take any vows, and you guys are making me take a vow on the Bible, and I won't do it. Long story, look it up if you want to. It's interesting. But when you think through just how, how uh, we are prone to do that, why? I've always thought it was interesting that we make people uh, take a vow in court anyhow, because if you're an atheist, why would the Bible be a higher authority that you would care about? It's just ridiculous. It's just we were a Christianized nation, and the assumption was everybody would feel, oh, I don't want to. But there's a bunch of people that don't care about the Bible, so why use it? But anyway. 
The reason why here you start looking through how how uh, Jesus is genuinely trying to get people out of that mindset. He's going to lay out for us here, but it's based on what we understand a vow or an oath to be. It was this solemn promise, this solemn promise in which people would swear by something greater than themselves. Hebrews six lays that out. People would swear by something greater than themselves as a testimony to their truthfulness. That's why in the law of Moses, God permitted the Israelites to make oaths in his name. They would. He would, he would allow for them to, to make oaths and they would be able to swear by the name of God. While, while they were able to use those, they would be careful, though, not to misuse the name of the Lord at the same time. Exodus 20 says, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. So, so there, it was understandable, again, because people realized they couldn't trust each other. It was understandable to go, I promise I'm going to do this and I'm going to swear by, by God's name that I'll do it because ultimately I'm saying I'm willing to suffer whatever consequence God will bring if I don't keep my word to you. But if people misuse or abuse God's name in order to bring about a certain agenda to make a promise they knew they weren't going to keep, that's where certain punishment would come. So God permitted oaths and he even made oaths. We see God swearing an oath to Abraham when he promised him that he would bless him greatly. The issue, is, the issue isn't just oaths. That's the thing. I think sometimes, again, we get really lazy. We see, remember I told y'all how dangerous it is to be like, I don't do this. Why? Because it's biblical. Well, if you don't understand what's being said in the biblical text, you may not be reflecting God's heart. You're just repeating things you saw in the Bible. That's not the same. So, so what is it here? Is it don't take oaths alone? It can't be that because we see plenty of oaths being taken in the Old Testament and we see God making oaths with his people as well. So why does Jesus say, but I tell you, don't take an oath at all. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Well, in this verse, Jesus is referring to something very, very specific. It's a specific type of vow, a specific type of promise, a specific type of oath that's a little more. It's actually really just a way for people to cover for their hypocrisy. We're going to look at this and walk through this because there's a lot of historical context we need to understand what Jesus is talking about. This is the reason why it's dangerous when you just go, I'm just going to look in this text and then come up with my thought and my understanding of this on my own. If you don't understand what they were doing, you have no idea what this means. You'll just quote it and have no idea what it means. So in understanding this, we've got to look back at what was happening uh, back then. There was a tradition that allowed for religious leaders and Jewish leaders and Pharisees to basically, they knew that there would be consequences if they swore by God's name. So they created a tiered system of different types of oaths so that you could manage the consequences when you lied. So in other words, we're not going to swear by God's name anymore. I'll just swear by Jerusalem or I'll swear by the temple. So if I lie, hey, don't punish me that way. I didn't swear by God's name. I only swore by the temple. I, I didn't I didn't I didn't necessarily say I promised to God or I didn't necessarily say that I, I swear by God's name here. I only swore by by the head of my mother. So in other words, this is what's really real for us. Untruthful people, much like these Pharisees, untruthful people are people who, who, who manage the truth in such a way so as to avoid consequences when they lie. That's, that's what was happening here. How do I manage the truth? By the way, 
Real truthful people, they don't ever manage truth. They just tell the truth. You don't, you don't have to just manage the truth and manage which facts. You know, it's inter- you guys know I'm in law school. And what's interesting is a good lawyer knows how to take the facts and massage the facts in such a way to create a narrative that will be believable enough so that they can get the outcome that, that they want. Am I wrong? Right. <laughs> I'm asking one of the greatest ones to do it. So I, if I get it from him, I know I'm right. You, you have to be able to take facts, true facts, you can't make things up. And the facts need to be such a compelling story that a jury can hear that and go, I can't give anything else but a not guilty or a guilty verdict. So it's their job to do that. But when you're a truth teller outside of that, when you're just a truth teller, there's no massaging necessary. There's no if you're telling the truth about yourself, there's no massaging or managing necessary. You just tell the truth. But what happens is when we're untruthful, what we do is how can I manage the truth in such a way so that even if I end up being wrong, my consequences will be mitigated. I'm more focused on the outcome. I'm more focused on the consequences than I am focused on being truthful. And so that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were basically going, how can we create a a different system so that if or when we lie, I don't have to be stoned. There may be a different fine instead. Okay, you lied, that's true, but who'd you, who'd you swear that to? Oh, you just swore by your house around the corner. Okay, that's a fine of $300. But if you swore by the temple, okay, that's this. And if you swore by God, then that's this. One commentator put it this way. The tradition Jesus mentions in this verse seemed to be biblical, but it had several flaws that made it fall short of what the Old Testament actually taught. Indiscriminate and insincere vows became so commonplace that no one took them seriously. Instead of being a mark of integrity, they became a mark of deceit. Instead of prompting confidence, they prompted skepticism. Another one adds, the force of an oath that to all appearances seemed binding could be evaded by minute inaccuracies in the formula that was used. They developed the fine art of hiding the truth behind their pious oaths. So what had happened is, as we said, they had come up with a system where they could just lie and not have to suffer for or suffer the consequences for their lies. Make a promise that you know you're going to break, but make sure you don't have to deal with the same consequences as a result. If you go back and look at those verses, you'll see that there seems to have been different levels of oath making. There's different levels of the ways in which they made promises to each other. If you look at the top of the list, verse 34, but I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by your head. So you already see these, he, he wasn't just using metaphors here. These were truly different tiers that they would use in order to make promises. They would, they would ultimately go, listen, I, I, only, I only swore by my head, I didn't swear by Jerusalem, or I didn't swear by Jerusalem, I only swore by the temple. They would use these things in order to control their, their, their outcomes. So if someone really wanted to stress their seriousness, they could swear by heaven. Okay, I'm really serious. You can really believe me now because I'm swearing by heaven. Maybe for a less serious oath, somebody might swear by the earth. Or, or maybe even for a less serious oath, they would uh, swear by Jerusalem. And, and once you get to the bottom of the list, it, for mundane matters, you can swear by your head. You look later in the text, and we, we won't get to this, but later in Matthew 23, you see Jesus refer to this yet again. 
You see Jesus challenging the scribes and the Pharisees by addressing their man-made traditions, their man-made oath-making. He adds to this list of first century oath-making formulas, and it seems like people were swearing not only by the temple, but they were swearing by the gold in the temple. Some people were swearing by the temple as a sacred altar, and some people were swearing uh, upon the offerings that were given in the altar. So you just see these different tiers that are being made so that they can control their consequences when they are untruthful, when they lie. So they had made this system, this very uh, complicated system of oaths with varying levels of accountability. I don't have to be accountable for my lie in the same way. It depends on who I swore it to. I, I hope we see this because this ultimately is this thing I said before is so true. If you're more focused on controlling the outcomes of your lying, then you are actually being truthful. Then there's no way you can be following Jesus. Like sometimes, y'all, this it's hard. There are things, truths that we got to tell. We just got to tell the truth, right? But you think about the fact that, man, if I tell the complete truth here, these things might happen. If I tell the total truth here, I might end up getting this consequence. And I'm so afraid of that consequence, so I better manage certain parts of the truth. I better not tell everything, because if I tell everything, I'm going to suffer over here. Then you add another layer to that, which is what they did. They're like, okay, well, not only do, do I not want to tell everything, but if, if it's found out that I didn't tell everything, what's going to happen to me? So how do I control that? Now, this, we can look at the Pharisees and go, those folks are crazy, but this is what we do. You know that there might be consequences coming your way, and you genuinely don't want to have to deal with those, so you manage the truth as best you can to make sure you don't have to deal with those consequences. It's logical. It makes sense. It's, it's survival. It's self-preservation. But ultimately, it isn't truthful. And Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, you tell the truth without regard for the consequences. In my kingdom, you tell the truth without regard for the consequences. This is why you see uh, Jesus rebuking the rabbi's teaching, and he, he called his followers to this standard of absolute truth. His message is pretty clear. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. In other words, everything we say and do must be done with honesty and integrity. Everything we say and do must be done with honesty and integrity. It can't just be like, you know, well, I told you told me you would do this. Yeah, but I didn't promise that. You said you would be here. Yeah, but I, did, I, I didn't I didn't swear. Well, I, I didn't pinky promise. That's ultimately where, what was happening here. Or I didn't swear by this. So we know it's not a matter of not making oaths. It's not a matter of not making promises under any circumstance. Right. Again, we're, this is not necessarily just a prohibition against oaths in and of itself. It's Jesus basically saying again what I said, truthful people don't manage the truth in order to minimize their consequences for lying. That means like technical lying. And people are like, well, I, did, I didn't actually say that. What I meant was this. I didn't use that word. Now, the word you're using, I didn't say that. It's, that's completely untruthful, right? It's completely untruthful. There's a lot of other words that come up that we, but, but it's not, when you really get to a place where people know have you ever been around someone where you have to make sure that you ask the right specific question in order to get the answer of the truth that you need? Do you feel like that person is particularly truthful? When you've got to come up with the perfect word choice and make sure you've got the right subject verb agreement just to get the truth from this person. Or maybe you are that person. 
Maybe you're really good at making sure, okay, did he ask the question the right way? Nope. Okay, then I'm safe. You didn't, you, you, you didn't ask when, you just asked what? So I, even though I know you're curious about when, you weren't aware enough to ask when, so you didn't get that from me. I'm not really lying. Managing the truth. I really hope I'm stepping on every toe, pinkies included, because this is something we all need. Because this is what we do. We all, none of us like consequences. None of us do. Who up here is doing ankle kicks to go jump and get excited about a consequence? <laughs> Nobody's doing that. We do ankle kicks when we get away from consequences and we call it a blessing. <laughs> I know I did wrong and I didn't have to deal with no consequences. God was faithful. No. He didn't promise to keep you from, no, that's not how that works. Grace, gracious, wonderful, that's great. But we, you realize that we should get to a point, even when you don't deal with a consequence, the truth of that should weigh on you. It should weigh on you. When we know that we've not been truthful, that should weigh on us to the point where we, I need to make sure that I clear this. And I, I can't walk around feeling this, why? Because I live in Jesus's kingdom. So any untruth that's sitting on me, sitting in me, any untruth that's in my heart, it weighs on me. I can't live fully. This isn't about feeling overly guilty. You can't fully live into the, into the calling Jesus brought you into if you're harboring untruthfulness. It's not possible. Because what happens is the truthfulness that you, that you uh, 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 fail to show, the lies that you hold on to, you end up having to tell more to keep them covered. You end up having to continue to weave together more and more and more. And so Jesus is saying, practice radical truthfulness. Be a truth teller and not a truth manager. Don't focus on managing all of the facts so that you can control and manipulate your outcome, your circumstances, your consequences. So Jesus gives this, this correction. And here's the last thing that, that I want us to understand about that one point. This is for all of us, for those of us that have done both. I'm sure we've both been on one side and the other. So listen, people who manage the truth manage people and manipulate them too. When you are a manager of the truth, you're a, a manipulator of people more often than not. Because what I need to do is I need to manage the truth in such a way so that the right narrative is in your head, so you're going the direction I want you to go. That's, that's my goal. I want to manage and manipulate you. I need you to believe this over here. So what things can I do or not do? What things can I say or not say so as to steward you into this direction over here? Because once you go in that direction, my agenda has been complete. People who manage truth manage and manipulate people. So Jesus gives us this very simple correction. What do you do? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Simply say yes or no. You don't have to add any other layer of appeal to this higher authority to be able to prove to a person. We're not talking about uh, civic matters. We're not talking about judicial matters. We're talking about one-on-one -on -one relationship stuff. I'm in relationship with you. You need to look at me and go, he said he'd do it, he'll do it. And this is not about like, uh, we're not talking about people who make a mistake or forget. or whatever. We're talking about people who know willingly they're telling you something that they know they're not going to do. Or they tell you something that they know isn't true. He says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this 
comes from the evil one. Why would he say that? Why would he say anything more when you're trying to deceive people by appealing to these different tiers of authorities, you are simply acting like the evil one because there's never been one greater at manipulating people than Satan himself. Y'all, that's really what he's getting at. There's never been a greater manipulator. There's never been a greater deceiver. So when you practice deceit with people, you start looking like Satan. That's what Jesus said. You realize that it's easy. we can be like, man, I, I, whew, I certainly got out of that. Praise God. But actually, you look more like the devil when you do it. Jesus makes this point again later again in chapter 23, where he basically says, whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything in it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it uh, and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. You see, the, these oath makers these oath makers who could be simply answering yes and no, they were taking sacred realities like the ones Jesus uh, just said, just listed. They were using those realities for their own flourishing. They were using those realities for their own attempts to seem holy, for their own efforts to add credibility to whatever statement they were making, or, or they were making linguistic loopholes to deceive their listeners. Now, this was so, so you realize when you read this text and you don't know this, it just would just not make a lot of sense. But these are folks who were manipulating truth and they were trying to figure out how do I get out of any consequences when I lie and deceive you and take advantage of you. And then Jesus goes on in verse 36 and he says, don't swear by your head because you can't make a single hair white or black. Or you just don't have any more hair like me. Either way, I like to tell people God just gave me more forehead. That's all. When you think about this and he says, don't take an oath by your head because you can't make one hair white or black. Jesus is confronting the pride of these oath takers. He's reminding them that not even one hair on their head is under their control. In other words, even the, the, the foolishness of you thinking that you can uh, uh, appeal to this higher power as if you have any control over it. Like you don't have any control over these higher authorities that you are appealing to. So when you go, I swear by my head, what authority do you have over your own head? What, what, what power do you have over your own head? You don't have power over. God knows the numbers of your hairs. You don't. How do you have the authority? Why do you think you have the authority to do anything like that? He says that even the hair, Jesus says in Matthew 10, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So like heaven, like earth. In Jerusalem and the temple, even the hairs on your head point you back to the greatness of God. Everything should be pointing to the authority of God. That's why it's such a, a, a hypocritical thing to, to use something God made in order to protect yourself from deceiving people. But it's God's authority that made it. So why would you think that would hide you? Why would you think that would shield you? So this brings us to this important question. If Jesus is talking about here, about something you do with, with your mouth, this oath taking, then isn't he also telling you something about your heart? And the scripture says out of the abundance of the mouth, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So, so when you choose to use deceitful words or deceitful language or deceitful sentence structures in order to get somebody to, in order to control your consequences, isn't that indicative of something happening on a heart level? That's what I meant. Jesus is talking. He's not just talking about stop your bad habits, stop your bad practices, or even stop your bad behavior. 
He's saying this deceitful heart you have needs to change. It needs to be changed. It's talking about this idea that Jesus has been doing this this entire chapter. Again, all the way back in verse 21, he's been doing this. He's been guiding us in terms of our heart. If you, when you read this, every single time you read the scriptures, every single time you read things Jesus says, every time you read things that are there, you know, in theological circles, they use two words to describe this. And it can sometimes get a little lost, but I'm just going to attempt to break, break it down super easy. Two words, indicative and imperative. Okay, let me just tell you really quickly. Imperative, when you have to do something, when there's, it, it's imperative that you do X, Y, and Z. And imperative are things we do. Imperatives are things we do. Indicatives are the things that should be making you do or compelling you to do those things. The indicatives matter. The imperatives are just a reflection of the indicative. So, so here's the thing. When you, when you stand before people at a wedding and you take vows, these are vows that are describing the imperatives. I will forsake all others. I will love you in sickness and in health. Now, a technical liar would be like, but we didn't define health, though. But anyway, I, will, I, will, I, I vow to love you in richer and poor. I've seen some people now go in richer and richer. Y'all, that's not cool. We are supposed, we do these things because these are vows. We're making these vows before everyone. In theory, we make these vows before everyone because we want people to hold us accountable for those vows. Those are all imperatives. Those are all great. But you do realize sometimes it's not even enough. I think most times we think the main reason why they should keep them is because they said they would do it. You realize that's not compelling enough. When people are in a bad place and you go, wait a minute, now you said you would keep these vows and you said you would do it and you did it and that's a problem. What is true but, but the thing is, were the indicatives there to begin with that made it possible for them to truly mean what they said? Jesus is saying, I, these indicatives better be there. Many times you get to a place where you make a promise with someone, whether relationally or, or otherwise, and you realize when you get to know somebody, when they've broken a promise to you, they haven't kept their word. You realize it's not just they have a problem keeping their word. That's really kind of lazy. It's not, people don't have a problem keeping their word. People have a problem actually uh, meaning what they say when they tell you what they say. If they mean what they say, they'll keep their word. There's, there's nothing you won't do that you meant to do unless something outside of you happens. So, so when people don't keep their word, it just means they never intended to keep their word to begin with. So ultimately, what's more important is the indicatives in our life. What things, right, what things are true about my heart that compel me to make and keep the vow I make to you? Were they true to begin with? It's a heartbreaking thing when you make promises with someone and you find out later those indicatives were never there when they made that promise. Which is why they were able to break or violate whatever vow they made to you. Because those indicatives may not, not always, but those indicatives may not have even been there before. That's one of the reasons why reconciliation sometimes becomes really difficult, because you realize if the indicatives were truly there, then, then there's something you can hold to to bring people back to the table and go, how do we work through this? But the reason why it becomes difficult or sometimes impossible is because one or both don't have the indicatives present. So it's not enough to just keep trying to guilt people to go, but you said what you said. It's more important to go, what was happening in your heart that made you ever make that vow, that made you make that promise? Jesus is describing the righteousness of the kingdom. He's describing the men and women who follow him. And he's doing that. 
with these words of, uh, that we, he, he does that with these words here in Matthew 5 where he starts to lay out, this is how your mindset should be. This is what you should be thinking when you tell the truth. This is what you should be thinking when you're compelled to try to make additional promises to prove your truthfulness. One old commentator, Matthew Henry, put it this way. He said, he said we should be of such acknowledged fidelity that our sober words would be as sacred as our solemn oaths. What does he mean? He uses that word, fidelity. Fidelity. It comes from this Latin word fidelis, and it means faith. It means uh, it has to do with faithfulness and trustworthiness, with loyalty, with constancy, with honesty, with dependability and responsibility. So when a person is thought of in those terms, when people say, like, man, what's a word you can think about with that person? Fidelity. They are faithful, they are constant, they are dependable, they are trustworthy, they are honest, they are responsible. When you're thought of in that way, you never need to make an oath. When you're thought of that way, you never have to make a promise. When people can look at you and go, fidelity, that's how I describe her. You tell me that you're going to do a thing, or you tell me something happened a certain way, I don't have to ask any other questions. I don't have to wait a minute now. You know, and this is where it can be hard when depending on the nature of your relationship, because when people show a lack of fidelity, but you're still in connection with them or you're still in a relationship with them, you then become, well, I don't know that I can trust your word anymore. So now I've got to go through all these other steps just to make sure you're telling me the truth. Then that becomes another toxic cycle. Because now, because you're managing the truth, you're over there managing truth over here so that I can't really understand what's happening. And then I'm over here trying to excavate truth that's been uh, buried somewhere. Or I'm trying to put together puzzle pieces of truth over here. And so now we've got a really bad relationship because one's managing, one's searching, one's seeking. Not together any longer. Y'all, this is what happens with us. This is what Jesus is trying to get us to. He's, he's really pointing out this issue of character, this need for fidelity so that we don't need for any kind of promise making. There's no need for swearing to something. There's no need to add credibility with spiritual sounding vows. Why? Because that person's everyday life has already established their credibility. That's it. Your everyday life establishes your credibility. How you function, how you think, how you engage, the reasons for your decision making, all of that establishes credibility. So you see Jesus is pointing to that issue of character. He's, he's pointing to that issue of integrity. Are you a person? Are we people of our word? That is, do we actually do and mean what we say we'll do? Can we be relied on? Are we trustworthy? Do you have a reputation for being honest and dependable? Are you responsible? Would people in your life trust you with their secret, with their burden, with their vehicle, with their child, with their life? Could they say that? The man or woman who strives to be this kind of person who feels confident that most people do think of them in these terms, that person has no need to say anything but yes or no. Their sober words should be as sacred 
as their solemn oaths. Like the commentator said, the people around them should be able to say, if she said yes, she'll do it. If she said no, then I believe her. It wasn't her fault. So the question is, is that what we desire? Like that's another big question. Do you actually desire to be that type of person? Do, do we desire to be someone that people can say fidelity when I think about that one? Because that's not supposed to just be like one possible trait of a follower of Jesus. That's supposed to be true of all of us. There's something about us that when we're go, we go out into the rest of the world, when people go, I, you know, I can based on the people I work with at work, I know these folks over here are like this, but I know I can always depend on that one. I know that this person is going to tell the truth, even if on some level they are culpable in the problem, they're still going to tell me the truth. Even if there's something inculpatory about what they're going to tell me, I know that they're going to still tell me the truth. There's something about fidelity that makes you trustworthy. There are some people that always tell the truth when it doesn't affect them. So that's good. They, you know, you know that they're going to a lot of times those are the people who sometimes sometimes people who love to spread gossip. They're real good at that. They keep all the facts. They don't leave anything out. And a lot of times everything they're saying might even be true. Then you're like, now, now what was your part in that? Oh, now you're asking, you know, that's kind of hard. It was what happened was it was it's real crazy. It's a crazy story. That's how you know a lie's about to come. Crazy story. But let me tell you what happened. They can tell you all the facts about everybody else, but things get a little muddy when they have to talk about themselves. Is this what we desire? Do we strive to reflect the faithfulness of God in all of our relationships? Do we want our reputation to reflect our Redeemer? Y'all, that's really what we're talking about here. If I'm following Jesus and I say I love Jesus, then I want my reputation to reflect my Redeemer. I want people to be able to know so that if or when people do want to come. Listen, there are times when people will come and they will encourage you and say, I just want to thank you for how dependable you are. I want to thank you for it. And that's great. Awesome. We, we appreciate that. And you want that to un, in some way reflect the faithfulness of our, of our Savior. To be able to know like, yes, this is I'm so overwhelmed by the ways that God is faithful to me that I can't do anything else but be faithful in turn. Now, here's here's the hard part, right? I might like the idea of being devoted to the people in my life, but being devoted to myself can often take a higher priority. I, may, I, I really will like very much be thankful. I, I want to be devoted to people, and I will be devoted to people. Sometimes, one, sometimes if you have not been practiced fidelity in some way, whether it's with friends, whether it's with family members, whether it's spouses, whatever, and you get exposed, your reaction can often be, but let me give you a list of all the times I really was faithful here. You remember that time when I did tell the truth? Remember that time when, when I could have, you know, I, a lot of times we'll do this, like, I didn't even have to tell you that, but I did. Well, here's a cookie. Because there's, the fact that you have to highlight that tells me that there are probably many times when you didn't. Because if that's just your rhythm, you never have to highlight that. So, so here, when you really think through what it is that I desire, am I striving to reflect that kind of faithfulness? Am I, am I, the reason why I can, I have examples where I did, where I was truthful to you is because in that time, it, to me, it was in my best interest to be more devoted to you than myself. But there are other times where in my best interest is better to be devoted to me than to you. And those are the times when I choose not to tell the truth. So that question has to always come up. What do I desire? 
do I want to have a, re a reputation that reflects the Redeemer in every situation, even if it means I might have to suffer some consequences? Well, the first step in, in answering this question is acknowledging your failings when it comes to your own credibility. There are times in life where any or all of us can struggle with being trustworthy. Part of it is because a lot, we all struggle at times with trusting ourselves before God. That's what we mean. I like the idea of being devoted to people in my life until I want to be more devoted to me. So in many relationships, relationships God has put in our lives, we have no real track record when it comes to trustworthiness because we tend to pull back when it comes time to be responsible and dependable. Sometimes, listen, there are times where when it's time to be accountable for something that's been untrue and I'm being asked questions about things that maybe it shows I've not been truthful, there's all kinds of deflections that start to happen. I don't like how this is making me feel right now. These questions aren't making me feel safe. I'm not sure that I feel comfortable talking about this. I, I don't like the way that this is making me feel. When those deflection points start to happen, that's me showing you I just don't want to have to be accountable for this right now. I would rather have more time. I say, I need more time. I want time to manage more facts so that when you ask me questions again, I know the right things to put you off the scent. As opposed to sitting here, standing here and dealing with the, and just telling you the truth of what it is. Many ways, that's when a lot of times, when we know we've been trustworthy at times, and then there are times when we feel, you know, we feel like we don't want to have to own up to certain things, we change and we start looking very, very flaky. And so there are times when many of us have been flaky on the truth. We've been flaky on fidelity. We've been flaky on what it means to take accountability. And here's the good news. Jesus died for the flaky. Like all of us need to know that. Because some of us have been incredibly, we're so faithful in so many ways. You know, sometimes it's harder when you know most or everybody around you is singing your praises about just how faithful you've been, but you know the times that you haven't been, and it's just you. Now you feel this pressure to keep performing because you don't want anybody to know about those things because you still don't believe that that thing can be redeemed. If you believe it can be redeemed, then there's nothing about that you won't be able to talk about. If you believe you've really been redeemed, then you're not trying to perform. You're able to go, this here is where I have not been faithful, or this here is where I've not been trustworthy, and here's what it's looked like for me. But because I've been redeemed, here are the ways that Jesus has changed and transformed that in my life. That's how the language of repentance sounds. It doesn't go, I don't like thinking about that or talking about that because it makes me feel bad, and I've grown, I'm a different person now, and I'm, I've moved on, I'm in a higher place. The Lord has taken me higher. That's actually, in a way, that's a way that we evade the heart work. That's how we evade sanctification. That's how we evade the ways that God actually changes us and remakes us. So in other words, you're not telling me that you've grown. You're telling me that you're good at hiding. And Jesus is making it clear that if you understand this right, then even the places where you've been flaky, you know that he died for you. He died for the irresponsible. He died for the betrayers. He died for the dishonest. He died for the me-centered people like us. And he died for people who take pride in the fact also that they're not any of those things or so they believe. In light of that, the second step forward that Jesus really, I think, put forward is pretty simple. By God's grace, through his spirit, be faithful. Be a faithful friend. Be a faithful brother. Be a faithful sister. Be a faithful father. 
be a faithful mother, be a faithful son, a faithful daughter, a faithful husband, a faithful wife, a faithful neighbor. One of the things that we realize is we don't start here until we start with God's love, the way that God has loved us, the betrayers, the way that God has shown true faithfulness to us, that love that he expressed in his faithfulness to others, even in the small details and even in the small stuff. Our honesty is so important. Our honesty is vitally important because we're witnesses for Jesus Christ. Like we always hear growing up, you know, it was like if somebody goes out to talk about Jesus, we're going witnessing, right? And a lot of times we think witnessing means how compelling can my arguments for God be to make somebody want to follow him? How many ways can I, what words can I use that will, uh, that will, that will interact with the deepest parts of your heart to make you go, okay, now I'll believe. But ultimately what it means to be a witness is to live out a life of fidelity in such a way that people are overwhelmed because they go, that is radical from the way I see in the world. That type of faithfulness, that type of responsibility, that type of accountability, I've never seen that. What would make, frankly, it doesn't even make sense. Why would you admit to maybe making a mistake here that could cost you so much of your job here? Why would you actually own up to that? That could cost you a promotion. On the surface, yeah, it seems dumb. And yet that is the thing that makes people go, you've got a completely different view of integrity that I don't understand. And I might not think it's even wise, but you know what? I trust you. Because you didn't put yourself above the truth on that. And if that's who you are, Y'all, this is the thing. I tell people, couples that are dating and people want to get married, how much of this self, uh, self-giving, how much self-protecting occurs with this person or with you? How much of your hiding and pretending do you do? And are you willing to acknowledge how you hide and pretend? And are you willing to identify what those uh, rhythms of repentance look like when you hide and pretend? That's when you know somebody's trustworthy. It's not just because they say, I promise not to let you down. That's a lie anyway. They're going to let you down. The question is, how do you, what are your rhythms of repentance when you're hiding and pretending and thereby letting me down? Can you walk through that for yourself? This is what it means to be people of integrity. If, if, if we're unreliable, then our witness is tarnished and we shame the name of Christ. If you can't be trusted to keep your word, then you can't be trusted to spread the word. Are we reliable? Are we trustworthy? Do we make promises that we can't keep or that we don't intend to keep? If we're not able to keep our promise, how do we respond? Do we add on more lives to be able to cover the fact that we can't keep the promise or to just be honest? Do we ask for forgiveness or do we simply just excuse it? Jesus calls his disciples to be honest and trustworthy and to be reliable so that our yes means yes. So may we commit to being truthful for our own sake and for the sake of the gospel. May we commit to being a people that is so focused on telling the truth that we don't care what the consequences will be. May we be a people that's so motivated, not by managing truth and managing people, but by telling the truth and lovingly serve people. May that be true of us. Y'all, this is what the gospel calls us to. If we struggle with that, then we have to admit we're just struggling with Jesus. It's not, I, got, I like Jesus, but this is the thing. No, if, if we struggle with that type of trust, that type of truth-telling, 
then it's Jesus we have a struggle with. Let's pray. Father, you are truth. You've shown us in so many ways what it means to genuinely be loved despite the fact that we are not trustworthy on so many occasions. And God, even the times when we are enacting with the truth, so often we can find ways to manipulate the truth so that it serves our own agenda and our own needs and our own wants. God, I pray that you right now would impress upon our hearts, even give us a deep level of, when necessary, discomfort in ways in which we've just been comfortable with our relationship to the truth because we use the truth to serve ourselves instead of using the truth to love each other. God, you've, you, you tell us that you are truth and that you bring your truth into our hearts and you use that truth to change us. You use that truth to convict us. You use that truth also to comfort us. You use that truth to correct us. So God, I pray that in the ways that you are more trustworthy than we ever will be, we trust you. We trust you to love us, to forgive us for all the ways that we are not trustworthy. But you don't just leave us sitting here asking for forgiveness. You give us this assurance that not only are we pardoned, but you give us your spirit. So you give us all the things that are necessary for us to be truthful, for us to practice genuine fidelity. God, I pray that we walk away right now thinking through not only have we practiced fidelity well, but seeing all the ways that we haven't. And God, I pray that some really hard conversations are had. I pray that we walk through what it means to genuinely ask for forgiveness and to genuinely practice these fruits, these rhythms of repentance, not so that we can just clear our conscience and feel better, but so that we can engage in genuine relationship with you and with one another. God, it's so easy to quote things like you have given us this ministry of reconciliation. And yet, if we're honest, the work that's necessary to do reconciliation are just things we're not interested in. And so, God, much like the Pharisees, we create rules and tiers of rules to, to help us figure out how we can just get out of having to carry the greatest weight. So, God, I pray that you would be with us, that you would give us the strength, your strength, to carry the weight of even our own failures because you've carried it first. And so we can navigate that, we can sit in that, we can know that we're forgiven from that and we can engage in rightly being truthful and loving one another. We ask you that now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.